This series was commissioned by members of the IBM Quantum team, two of whom you have all come to know so well. Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum, and Abraham Asfa, the global lead of quantum education and open science at IBM Quantum. However, we haven't spent much time with other IBMers on the show thus far. The stories we've told have not been set in the world of corporate research and innovation. But this episode, where we turn our focus from the academy to industry, felt like the right time to introduce some IBM stars. In this episode, we'll be spending time with Pat Guman, the manager of quantum processing and system integration, quantum computing at IBM, and Jay Gambetta, IBM fellow and vice president, quantum computing at IBM. Now, like so many of our previous guests, the journeys taken by both Pat and Jay to careers in the quantum field were winding, unexpected, and shaped by passion and curiosity rather than a need for stability and certainty. Here's Pat Guman. I went to school um, uh, and graduated from Darmstadt University of Technology. Um, so while I was doing my PhD, I also kind of embarked on this uh, passion of mine by driving three hours up north to a Ulick Research Center in the middle of Germany, where um, Frank Kobel's uh, group was, uh, and uh, one of the largest low temperature physics lab, uh, labs in the world was at that time. So I did that for about four years, and it was pretty exciting. Uh, I never thought that I will be a part of the quantum computing uh, team and building a quantum computer, uh, like for real, uh, because back in those days, that, that field didn't exist. People were studying quantum effects in, uh, in different uh, materials. Um, I, myself particularly, was investigating uh, helium-4 crystals and uh, uh, helium-3 liquids, quantum fluids and solids. That field kind of died around 2008. So if I would have to pinpoint a time when I actually kind of joined the quantum computing field um, or quantum sensing, uh, that would probably around 2010, uh, where I took a position at the uh, Institute for Quantum Computing uh, University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. And here's Jay Gambetta. I, I did my um, undergrad work in laser science. So it wasn't even actually physics or uh, math or that. So I actually uh, left school and I did a course where I wanted to understand uh, engineering of lasers and I did a lot of work on lasers. So at the end of my bachelor degree, I found myself asking the question, these are cool, but I want to understand what's going on in them and understand the physics. So I actually started an honors uh, course, which is similar to your master's course in, in the U.S., on experimental physics, shooting lasers into atoms and measuring cross-sections. And so in doing that, I found that the way to describe everything uh, was because of quantum mechanics. So then I said, well, what's this quantum mechanics? And I really understand it. Pat's and Jay's quantum journeys, like other folks we've spoken with in past episodes, saw both of them being able to, heck, being encouraged to lean on the various other skills they'd acquired through the years. There's a unique interdisciplinary aspect in the careers of everyone that we've spoken to in the quantum field. And and I wanted to know why this was. So <laughs> I asked Pat. There's an unusual alchemy involved in the careers of everyone that we've spoken to in the quantum space that is both inspiring and entirely unique. And it's also why we hear, even from yourself just now, recurrent stories about like, I don't know that I actually ever thought this could be my career, right? Because it's, because it's so unique. It's so different. Where is the Venn diagram of your creativity right now? And where has it been, I guess, since the start of your career? Good question. Very good question. And, and I'm going to give you a typical physicist answer. It all depends. Uh, because the field is so vast and, and not only vast in terms of how many players are in the game playing out there, the different flavors of technologies, like actual technical aspects of those different quantum computing platforms are so different from each other that we need, that field needs chemists. They do need uh, physicists. They do need material science. They need they do need software engineers, mechanical engineers, and the next generation of students such that, first of all, they get excited because at some point we're gonna run out, run out of talents if universities do not produce and train quantum engineers or quantum, or quantum scientists. What Pat's saying there that Unless we start focusing on the next generation of students, we're going to run out of quantum engineers and quantum scientists. 
This further encourages the idea of casting a wide net in order to attract diverse talent from different backgrounds, folks who bring unique perspectives and who are willing to take a risk. And these career paths do not follow a straight line. I, I can't stress this enough. Even after Jay discovered that he was drawn to quantum mechanics, for example, and purchased a bunch of books on density states and the math of quantum mechanics, it was still hard. Well, quantum mechanics is hard. It still doesn't make sense. So I might as well do a PhD in interpretations of quantum mechanics. And so then I found myself doing a PhD in interpretations of quantum mechanics. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, my supervisor, Howard Wiseman, taught me a lot about the math, the why, and what it meant. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. But at the end of the day, I felt that I needed to get back to something experimental. And so it was natural for me then to explore these new fields like uh, Circuit QED that were just launching and I ended up connecting with uh, Steve Gervin at Yale. And I, I said, we had a discussion. It was something along the lines of, I don't understand condensed matter myself. And he was looking to understand how quantum optics applied to these systems. And since quantum optics had been around longer, it was natural to think of quantum optics in terms of interpretations of quantum mechanics. So I'm like, all right, I'll jump into a new field of condensed matter and uh, bring my quantum optics knowledge. And then I, I, I went on, I came out, I left Australia and came to Yale and uh, ended up uh, working with Steve, uh, where obviously superconducting on superconducting qubits. And so my, my, I don't know if it was a desire to jump. I think my whole life is always a desire to try and understand something by jumping in and doing it. And I found myself uh, in quantum computing now. What I also learned from both of these conversations, and what was perhaps clearest in this particular episode, is that there is no real natural transition into a career in quantum from whatever else you were doing. <laughs> Remember, this is a fairly young field. It ha yeah, it has started back in you know 70s, 80s, uh, where Charlie Bennett literally created a quantum information theory field, like UIT. But there was it still took about 30 years from from being a, a Shores algorithm uh, uh, to, to, to the point where we can actually start building devices. Pat's right. This is a fairly young field, even though the span of time we've covered in just a handful of episodes stretches roughly 30 years. But this is also a chance to recall how many of our guests are real pioneers, pushing the boundaries of computing, and also how, for all of our focus on the work done in the quantum field to date, the real work is yet to come. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, a history of quantum computing. Now, because this is a podcast, uh, you all don't really know how it looked, uh, what the setup was when we were interviewing our guests, right? So I'd like to give listeners a chance to imagine what it looked like over our Zoom call with Pat Guman. Uh, Sebastian and I saw that Pat was surrounded by massive refrigerators on his end of the call. It was a wild sight. And among my very first glimpses of the actual physical scale required to successfully develop quantum computers. See, qubits need to remain cool to stay in their quantum state. And dilution refrigerators, whose ability to cool comes from the mixing of helium-3 and helium-4 isotopes, are critical to superconducting qubits. Sebastian identified right away what made our discussions with Pat and Jay different from our discussions in episode 3 with professors Tina Brower-Thomas, Margaret Martinosi, and Ken Brown. So you, I mean, you've always been then uh, the hands-on type, right? I mean, you've, I don't think you've really done any long stints in theory. You've always been the guy actually making the equipment work and, and like setting up uh, actual physical experiments, right? The size of the refrigerators was just a particularly vivid way of emphasizing the physical of the physical experiments. But we were now talking to experimentalists, not theorists, the proverbial other side of an ongoing, friendly rivalry in the scientific community. And we definitely needed to address the elephant in the room, or the dilution refrigerators that were just about the same size as an elephant. Dilution refrigeration systems um, uh, are sort of like what you have in your kitchen. Uh, they're a little bit more complicated and, and the, the fundamental is um, a bit different, but um, it does come down to an evaporative cooling. Before I get into the actual explanation of, of how it works, 
just to build build your intuition and, and your feelings so you can relate to your day-to-day life. Um, if you take a hot shower and you come out of the shower and, and there's still hot vapor, water vapor evaporating from your skin, you get chills. Right? And that, that is evaporative cooling, simply. Um, so we uh, use very similar principles in, in, in constructing, building, and operating dill fridges. Um, we have a mixture of helium-3 and helium-4 contained in a little pot. Just picture a coffee mug um, made out of copper and then it's bolted or anchored to a much bigger round plate. Uh, typically, depending on the company or, or a research institution, this can be anywhere between <clears throat> 10 inches to 20 inches to maybe even 48 inches diameter, about a quarter to up to half inch thick. Uh, gold-plated copper plates. So in a little coffee pot, which can be either on a side or somewhere in the center of that big plate, uh, we contain, restrict a mixture of helium-3 and helium-4. Two really pretty cool isotopes of helium. It just happened that nature gave us this this beautiful phenomenon where up to 6% of helium-3 can be fully dissolved in helium-4. So it does not phase separate, in other words. And if you look at the phase diagram of helium-3 versus uh, helium-3 and 4 mixture versus temperature, you will see that up to 6% helium-3 is fully soluble. And if you have a way of pumping, removing that helium-3 from that mixture and feeding it back in, you can have a closed cycle refrigeration system. Um, Why is that so cool? Because if you look at the Y scale, which uh, denotes the temperature in Kelvin, in physics, we use Kelvin, so maybe for all the other listeners, to just to give you a, a kind of an intuition, um, zero degrees Celsius, that's about 273 degrees Kelvin, uh, which is about 6, uh, 32, uh, it, is, it is exactly 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So those kind of dilution refrigerators we're talking about, they operate close to negative 273 degrees Celsius, uh, or 0.012 Kelvin. I believe it's negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit. So very, very close to zero Kelvin. <laughs> very, very close to absolute zero. Yeah, right. I mean, that's worth pointing out that the reason that uh, Kelvin is used in science is that zero is has a, uh, a constant physical effect, right? I mean, absolute zero means something in physics that zero in Celsius does not. I mean, other than phase shift for water. <laughs> so... Now that you have 0.012 Kelvin, and knowing just how essential dilution refrigerators are for superconducting qubits, and also that IBM has chosen to pursue a superconducting-based quantum computing platform, what was Pat's familiarity with any of this, with the whole field, before he entered it? Before you sort of um, got into directly into, into quantum computation, were you aware of the field and sort of you know, were you on the side of the skeptics of thinking this is never going to be possible, or were you? Do you, did you think you had, you had an optimistic outlook from the beginning? I, I was aware of it, I, and I've heard of David Vincenzo from IBM, for instance, back in those days. David Vincenzo's criteria and what IBM has uh, has been doing, uh, but it wasn't until you know what early to mid two thousands till when uh, actually Jay Gambetta. Um, came up with the, uh, together with his colleagues at Yale University and Rob Shulkov's group with the design uh, and, and idea of a transmog qubit. Right, right. And that's based on a Joseph's injunction, which been, been, has been around since, I think, early 60s, right? I think the that was that effect was discovered sometime in like 62 or something like that. To be honest with you, I don't exactly remember. That's what Wikipedia is for, but yeah. 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 <laughs> but, Faster than early 60s, yeah. Brian discovered that the Cooper pairs can actually tunnel across a very thin oxide barrier. So this is uh, a quantum mechanical effect where um, there's there's a barrier um, that is would normally not allow uh, a current across it, right? Is it actually an electrical current? Classically, yeah. Yeah, right. Classically a current. So it's a barrier that electrons can't pass classically. But under certain conditions, they tunnel through that that insulator essentially, um, and cross over to the other side. And that that junction is called a Josephson junction. Ah, a Josephson junction, <laughs> a term in need of a clearer definition than any I can offer. And so another great opportunity to throw to our friend Abe for an Abe splainer. 
In the simplest sense, a Josephson junction is a thin layer of metal as an oxide or some other form of insulator, and then another thin layer of metal. So think of a sandwich made of two layers of metal with an insulator between them. And that insulator is so thin that the quantum state on both sides of the of the island of that of that oxide are able to overlap with each other. Thank you, Abe. Now, Pat elaborated on this, going on to explain that when electrons cross this insulator, they pair off into what are called Cooper pairs. Yeah, they they have to do a little bit more than that. They have to pair pair up first, so that's that's called Cooper pairs. So you have two electrons creating one Cooper pair, and that Cooper pair has certain properties. It's got a, a coherence length, uh, and uh, basically it moves through a piece of uh, metal, uh, which uh, at those temperatures below the certain critical temperatures we call the superconductor, uh, jointly, like together. Um, one electron is pulling the other and so on. And then when it when it goes through that barrier, the first electron jumps across and it pulls the other one behind it. So it's two speeds. Interesting. So those that Cooper pair is actually the, the um, I wouldn't call it a thing. I don't know what it is. <laughs> that that phenomena that's actually being um, manipulated and measured by the microwave pulses at the bottom of the dilution refrigerator, right? Close. The the, the microwave pulses are are the Cooper pairs going through that layer of oxide from one end to the other, uh, and then down to ground. Um, it's basically, as you said, an electrical current, uh, but there's no dissipation, so there's no losses. As the material already became superconducting, so it's the, the resistivity equals zero, so the losses are right, right. So at room temperature, that um, oxide in the middle would block any kind of electrical current at all, I think, right? Or, or almost all. It depends on the thickness of the oxide. In a transistor, you still have oxides, and yet you can tunnel stuff across it, but there will be dissipation. We don't have that. We don't have that heat generation uh, at the level of quantum processors because they operate, well, first of all, at very low temperatures, but there is not, uh, there's not this resistivity effect, the, the loss uh, of the energy. Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, IBM has chosen to pursue a superconducting-based quantum computing platform, which has served as the basis for so much of the experimentation in each of our guests' careers. But for Jay Gambetta, getting into superconducting qubits didn't occur until he decided to make quantum his career in the early 2000s. So I didn't get into superconducting qubits until 2004. Um, but I actually don't think there has been a desert. There has just been a change in what was the focus. So in the 1995 period, it was really, so when I was doing my PhD, even though I was doing interpretation, there were all these, uh, so I started my PhD in 2000, but there was a lot of interesting papers that I found myself reading like quantum teleportation, Shaw's algorithm, and, and all, all the uh, Shaw's paper. So in the 1990s, it was really about um, this math can do something cool like quantum computing, and we yet still don't even understand the math. And so there was a lot of excitement about what can this math quantum, what can this quantum do? How do we understand it? And, um, and, uh, and, and so I would say that period of time focused on that. Then in the 19, and then in the late 1990s, early 2000s was about single qubits. And how do we actually make qubits? How do we get the coherence up? What I loved in each of these conversations is that both Jay and Pat continued to illuminate, for me at least, how hands-on they'd become in their careers. How, over a decade and a half, they'd come to plant their feet firmly in the experimentalist group, where theorizing could only satisfy so much of their curiosity and ambition. We heard a little while ago that Pat met Jay for the first time in 2012, and Jay was, once he left Yale, itching for change. Like Pat, he was eager to build something. So I, I, had, I found myself with multiple opportunities, but I wanted to come to IBM because um, I felt that the, working in an industry lab would give me the best chance of putting a large system together. And so that was in, sort of my journey, the next step of, that I wanted to do. So I came down to 
IBM in 2011 and uh, really started to focus on working with the team here and thinking about how we put, how we get into starting to build systems rather than, uh, I would say, lab demonstrations. You made the academia to industry transition, but in your current role, is it a more theoretical role? Look, obviously I come with the theoretical lens and I don't do as much work in the uh, lab but I'm not afraid to get in and actually help make measurements or help actually write the code. So I, it's always, <laughs> theorist versus experimentalist has always been a debated topic uh, with different types of people. Do you call yourself an experimentalist or a theorist? I want to build something. So I always focus on calling myself a scientist, to be honest. And um, there are scientists that have more skills in others. And what I try to do in the team that we have is engineer it such that everyone has a lot of overlap but has expertise in their own area. And I think that leads to a very creative, good team. Jay's line there about assembling teams where the skills of each member can overlap with one another, but they each still have expertise in their own area. That's a very important point about how best to bring together a group of experts whose work will not only shape the future of the field, but become appealing to centers of funding so that they can have the resources to develop the future of the field. On a practical level, this sort of work requires an awful lot of patience and an ecosystem willing to continue to support the work of theorists and experimentalists alike. Something we also discussed with Pat Guman. I'm always amazed at how much preparation goes into getting one of these systems up and running and then and then recalibrating on a daily basis, right? And it, it can kind of remind you of the early days of, of, of first classical computers, right? World quantum computers become smaller within a given time frame? I think, yes, yeah, straightforwardly. It's, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of how fast the technology moves ahead. It's a matter of how much funding is being provided. It's a matter of whether corporations or, or, or governments are patient enough to keep on funding that and, and keep on supporting that kind of research. If not, it might happen what happened to the high temperature superconductors back in the 80s. You know, after 20 years of, of, of trying and still now hitting this holy grail of room temperature superconductivity, we stopped funding it in the field. Right? So we're at the very beginning. Hopefully it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue and hopefully instead of needing a, a, a thousand square feet lab space to set up one 50 or 100 plus qubit quantum computer, we can maybe go to a desktop type of machines. But again, you have to put it in the perspective of time. Putting all of the work that one does in a career in science and industry in the perspective of time, as Pat suggests, is important given how so often in this story, the uh, practical challenges or funding uh, the support of business and government can determine progress. This theme has recurred again and again. And I was thinking actually during our conversation with Jay uh, from a few minutes ago when he said he didn't get into superconducting qubits until the year 2000. Well, the, the period from the late 90s to the mid-aughts in the immediate wake of the breakthrough of Shor's algorithm proved to be a very interesting time in the history of the field from a research perspective, as we also learned in our last episode, even if, as Ken Brown said, the period could almost certainly be called a quantum winter in terms of funding. Sebastian asked Pat about this, too. In our conversation with uh, Ken Brown uh, in particular, he mentioned that um, after Shore um, uh, and the factoring algorithm, there was a, a sort of uh, glut of, of government um, available funding, right? Um, and that, that in a way that, that seemed to dry up um, in the early 2000s um, until um, some breakthroughs in, uh, I guess, error correction and, uh, and, and um, scalability, right, of the, of the qubits? Yeah, you can look at it two ways. You can wait for that breakthrough to stimulate scientific community and create excitement and create a whole bunch of high-profile nature papers or science papers or PRL or what have you. And then that, that, that attention it will be picked up by, by your government and then funding will, will start reflowing again uh, from, from whatever agencies. Or, or you can look at it from a different point of view. If there is an individual or a group of scientists who are capable, believe in that and have either a good, good intuition or you know, good spiel <laughs> or a good salesman, <laughs> they can convince one 
government agency, one arm of government, or even a, a private investor to to give them the opportunity to prove that one particular aspect of, uh, now maybe not necessarily the entire, uh, how to build the entire quantum computer, but uh, proof of concept is enough. One example I like to say is, uh, bring up is always, thank God that we have one done more than one government uh, on this planet. <laughs> this, this thing called, you know, different governments can compete with each other. Right. Uh, and sometimes that comes down to competing in science and research. Right. There are certain advantages if you possess that particular technology which can deliver something. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's interesting uh, to your point. I mean, each government has its own sort of uh, um, parochial concerns, but then the science community as a whole does seem to have a natural, especially in physics, seems to be incredibly internationally collaborative, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I grew up in a system where there was no feedback, right? Uh, before um, the wall fell in 1989, uh, the, the whole system set up uh, was to produce as much as we can so we can show to the world that we have the largest planes or the largest military or the lar largest pile of coal in the world, right? It doesn't really matter that you, you, you don't need that. Right. It doesn't really matter that if you keep on doing that for 50-something years after the, the end of the world, you, you're just going to destroy the system. The lack of feedback mechanism is, is just not uh, viable economically. I was intrigued by this idea of government as a feedback mechanism and how the lack of such a feedback mechanism when, say, there are no elections, when the democratic process is thwarted or ignored, isn't just not economically viable, as Pat explained to us, but can also impede real progress, transformational progress between government and the other areas we've been exploring these past two episodes in the academy and in industry. Jay shared his thoughts on how to be more effective with funding, assuming that all actors, government, academy, industry, and more, are participating. But I can say what I think is effective is uh, making sure that you fund enough to do high risk, high reward, as well as at the same time, continuously develop along a roadmap. If you can get an equation where we can do that more effective and do the high risk, high reward and get that fed into industry, I think you will accelerate progress. At the moment, we do a pretty good job, um, but the way that we, we, we the university serve a really good, important purpose of trying different trying different results. Seeing well, I guess that's a, that's a sub question. And sorry, is who's benchmarking? Are the benchmarks of government funding versus industry funding versus the funding that comes from academia different? Like who's how and where is that roadmap being designed? Well, so the extent the government funding typically in quantum is being large uh, programs, and they set um, aggressive. Um, aggressive goals and they require partnering with uh, universities and industry labs to achieve that. I, I think this has been pretty effective. I would say at IBM, we leveraged one of them by taking our qubits here, working with a few partners to get um, uh, multi-qubit gates working. And um, th that it's successful when you can set a really difficult goal and part of that to achieve that goal needs the partnership of industry with uh, universities, with the universities taking more the high risk, high reward type payoff experiments and the industry working out how to continuously build against the roadmap and, and, and by talking with their colleagues, incorporate their ideas as fast as possible. As I said earlier in this episode, this this is a new field still, a new decades old field, but... <laughs> Uh, new in the sense that our guests in each episode are not just participants in the history of this journey towards building quantum computers, they are accelerating its progress. For Pat and Jay, the questions of timeline, the sort of pressure to show near-term value and use cases in quantum computing is different than the pressure experienced by our guests in the last episode. The pressures of working at a multinational corporation are different than working in a university setting, after all, with a commercial expectation baked into the development of anything new and innovative. This pioneering work is hard, and it can be lonely. It requires serious determination and focus and a belief in the work that will power you forward each day. With that in mind, 
Abe, uh, again, who you will recognize from past episodes, ask Jay a question about how he powers forward each day. You know, on a day-to-day basis, when I think about Jay, I think someone who's leading the direction of a large team that's trying to build these quantum systems. What keeps you excited to go on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> what what doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, what keeps you excited? You, you're building a technology that you don't know how to build that promises to do do something that no other technology can. How, how, I, I don't think you could ask for a better job. I, so I'm, it's not about keeping the excitement. It's more about keeping, uh, keeping an understanding of where the technology is and to put it into context of what can be done and to make sure that we, we be responsible and we be aggressive in what we want to do, but still be responsible of where quantum, quantum currently is. And because it promises so much, I don't think we have any problem in defining its applications. We, we, we just got to work out what, what, what do we need to build to make that possible? What needs to be built to make quantum possible? This requires institutional support, support that IBM gives each of our guests. And it also requires the ability to recognize the new while remaining on top of the science, balancing research with the incremental improvement of the product itself. Pat addressed this balance in our conversation. Well, that's where you need to have a either a, a fairly good management team, or you have to educate your, you know, research staff to think a little bit differently th- th- as they were told in, in, in school before they join an uh, uh, industrial R and D type of environments. Um, that yes, you need to stay excited and you need to step stay on the top of the science. That's number one. Without nothing, without that, nothing else is going to happen. But at the same time, you have to have a razor sharp focus on what is it that we're trying to do here. Uh, and it's hard. I, I, I'll be honest with you. Quite frankly, it's it's probably one of the hardest challenges in the in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. To, uh, R&D type of uh, environment in industry. Here, the the task has been set. And the task is to, you know. I might be naive, but is is to make history. Yeah, and and that, uh, can we can only go, get there by by following uh, the very rigorous set of milestones based on the information we have provided as researchers to our management team or our business team, and and, and trying to maneuver through that uh, together is the way to do. Yeah, in your mind, is that is there a specific? Uh, milestone that represents, I mean, there's a lot of historical things that are going on in quantum computing, but what's the one that sort of drives you on a day-to-day basis? To, to build a, a product which can be used. Right now, we're building products, right? We're, we're deploying systems on, on the cloud and, and other companies are doing that too. But, but in order to be, uh, at least in my opinion, to, to yield something which which larger masses can, can benefit from, we need to be able to create a product or app application, either one, uh, that other people can benefit from it on much larger scale. So I would say deploy a system which has a set of requirements uh, which enable um, one of our clients who is not an expert in quantum computing right. uh, to, to benefit from it, either either uh, by creating monetary value or optimizing uh, their, their current uh, business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and- making money or saving money. <laughs> yeah. Again and again, two themes emerge in our conversations with Pat and Jay. The difference between theoretical work and experimental work, and of course the obligation to build something commercial, uh, that, that obligation that is experienced by those who work in industry, as opposed to our guests from the academy. Pat's point there about deploying a system for a client where the value of quantum computing is experienced explicitly is something that, well, makes sense to consider. Since we began the series, I'd been wondering about near-term versus long-term horizons in quantum. What are the applications that would most immediately become commercialized or even just seize public attention? So near-term, we will build systems that can can do... Near-term, we'll build systems that will implement quantum math 
that has never that is not possible to simulate classically. And so asking how we turn that around on itself, I think is just that in itself, turn that around into developing something useful is enough to inspire me. And and as as I said before, building that based on uh, looking at say chemistry or sim- quantum simulations in general, or looking at how we look at linear algebra problems through the lens of this type of new math, I I think there's a lot that can be possible if we can get if we can get a reliable high fidelity simulation of some type of material that cannot be simulated. The amount of applications that are possible on that, you can just keep listing them. Be wherever you want, right? The same math that describes chemistry, describes material science, describes high energy physics. If you can just do it, you can look at each one of them. Um, if we if we can actually get uh, if we can apply things like um, if we can apply quantum circuits that can do certain uh, inversions of math that are not possible, there's a lot of areas that I'd like to look in AI. So near term, it's all about can I actually implement it and can I implement it with high fidelity? Long term is about um, making sure that I can the, the running of the algorithm can run in a reasonable time and and then and then it, then if it with with high enough fidelity then it's the same well it's similar there's there's lots of applications balancing the near term the what can be implemented with a longer term vision is part of the trick as is balancing the roadmap you're following with say external partnerships with smaller companies and universities a balance pat strikes in his work and which sebastian pointed out so um you still keep uh, a very active hand in, in the material science side of things through some of our academic partnerships and other ways. Um, what are sort of the, the, is there, is there, I guess, is there like an incremental goal that you can see in, in, on the material side of things that's going to, you know, have fundamental, like, like large, you know, large improvements, or is it sort of more, are, are there, you know, sort of, uh, black swan or, or, you know, like unexpected uh, outcomes that you're, you're sort of hoping for or both. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to work here. This facility and the support we get is, is, is pretty amazing. It's quite unique. And I don't, and I don't mean to offend anyone else out there. Uh, this is again, my opinion, I hope my colleagues and everyone else understands you, you're entitled to your own opinion. And I'm sure there is tons of other corporations and universities where people would say exactly the same thing. I just ended up here in this place, and that's 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 my point of view. Um, I um, because of that, we get so much support uh, and the vision. Uh, yes, we had a set of milestones. We have a roadmaps, which we recently announced, and people know that we're marching towards a, a thousand qubit device by the year of 2023. And for that, we need X, Y, Z. Uh, but at the same time, we do get a lot of freedom. To We do get a lot of freedom to look outside our roadmap, to look beyond the 2023 milestone. Uh, so we, we take advantage of that, and I, I do a lot. Uh, almost almost every week through collaboration with universities where where we can explore other platforms or other materials for our current existing platform because uh, it's still a bet at the end of the day the corporation is taking a bet you know like every corporation like every startup like like, like every company startup in particular where you see uh, you, you get a whole bunch of VC money or invest investment money and and they trust you that whatever you're trying to build is, is going to work. And it's the same with us. With the right support, each of our guests say, the layers of the quantum workforce will only grow. And a new generation of the quantum workforce can steer the direction of the field, but overlapping with one another while still leaning on their own specific expertise, which is what Jay thinks makes for a successful team, as you will recall. It's also what he likes to think the future has in store. That with widespread adoption, with the right tools in the hands of the right developers, the field can blow up, as he describes it, and millions of people would see more immediate, practical uses for quantum computation technology in their lives. So, I like to think the future will consist of multiple layers of 
of uh, researchers or developers that are doing it. You're going to have the people that are going to build and keep building the circuits and the gates. And then you're going to have the people that uh, build the algorithms based on them. And then you're going to have the people that work out how to turn them into applications. If you come, error mitigation and error correction, I believe are tools that we will need to implement and have to implement to make sure that the circuits that we do are performed with high enough quality. And I think in the end, most developers and most users won't ever see them. They will just call 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 the quantum the quantum calculation, like call the quantum algorithm. So you you can then ask, well, will there be a continuum from error mitigation to error correction? We don't know the answer to that question. Maybe. Will there be different ways of implementing a circuit? And I think well we'll we'll see with hardware you want to do an algorithm which might state some problem, like enter, estimate some value of some some property. And there might be multiple different ways you could realize that with circuits and hardware. But ultimately, that will become optimized libraries, much like we have classically, that the details of how they're implemented with the hardware won't be what most users touch. They'll say, I want to implement this, this, this math that gets me this property. And so... I think there's a lot of innovation that's going to happen of understanding hardware, understanding how much error correction, understanding if we need to do error mitigation on top of it to determine the outcome of the quantum the quantum uh, calculation with the high with higher quality. And so, I see a future that we got to walk up this stack, and and all, and I believe we need to do it open first. Yeah, there's that's such an interesting aspect of this the phase we're in right now. You know, the all of the innards are exposed, right? I mean, we're seeing all the way down to the qubit essentially. Um, and if you compare that to classical processors or GPUs for that matter, that's just a black box. You don't think about how uh, error correction happens or uh, the speed ups happen or how the the I/O pipeline operates or any of the um, massive amount of technology and science that are, are embedded in any one of those chips, um, you use it as utility. And I think, you know, as you're saying, I think that's eventually we get to that that place with quantum. Yeah, but even classically, some people do. And some people sure. do and need to do continually to make progress. So it'll be true for quantum as well. There always will be a community that go down on a really low level, but success will be getting quantum integrated where developers and people develop doing research or working today then you just call this the quantum then you just call this quantum i often think about this definition of success for any esoteric technology where it just is you're not explaining it or adding a caveat i mean when you read about an exciting new startup for example are you really thinking about it as an internet company No, most services are just web-enabled now. They're de facto internet companies, and so the technology has stopped seeming so important in the descriptor. Right now, we are still far away from being able to do that with quantum-enabled products, primarily because of how difficult it has been to build historically, and given how opaque some of even the most hands-on work can seem. (laughs) I mean, one of my favorite moments in our interview with Pat came when Sebastian inquired about his whole setup, wanting to know just what the heck was going on exactly in that room full of dilution refrigerators? Uh, I think it'd be super interesting if you uh, just walk us through that that whole stack. Um, like you've got room temperature electronics that are controlled by software that are programming microwave pulses. And and then that microwave equipment um, from that point down to the, to the qubit, what's the... The, all of the components and the transformations that go through at, at some level. I mean, high level, not everything. But. Yeah, you got it. It's, it's, it's actually not that hard to understand because a lot of those components we use in our day-to-day lives. So a quantum computer, first of all, is controlled by a classical computer. So you need to have a desktop PC, very simply. Um, that PC, uh, as a lot of us known, has... A music or, or, or an audio uh, card in it. Uh, 
and you can plug in your mic into the back of your you know, desktop PC or your laptop computer, and you can sing, and that information, when you sing, is recorded by your microphone as an analog signal. And then inside your computer will be digitized. So just bear that aspect in mind. We'll get to it at the end of me describing the entire um, component flow and, and wiring diagram. So you have a classical PC. That classical PC has a software on it. And depending what you what you like, what your flavor is, uh, different companies uh, and different universities came up with different open source software. We had IBM use Qiskit and uh, we like it. So you you create your 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 pulse sequence or uh, your sequence of sequence of gates. So your algorithm you're trying to run has to be transpiled to the sequence of gates. And those gates, it's a fancy word for microwave pulses. What are microwave pulses? Well, your cell phone receives microwave signals all the time. Right? So depending on, on your carrier, that, that can be anywhere between 900 megahertz up to 1 point something gigahertz. Um, so those are microwaves. You know? And another form of microwaves is, is, is your microwave, natural microwave in your kitchen. There is a magnetron. It's a device inside that microwave which generates 2.4 gigahertz pulses. Another form of microwaves is your microwave, your Wi-Fi router. That operates at 2. Point, I believe 2.4, 2.5, and 5 gigahertz frequencies. Uh, incidentally, the 5 gigahertz frequency, the microwave frequency, is, is the frequency which we use to control our qubits. So you have your classical computer, which is hardwired using cables to something which is called a room temperature electronics. And it's a 19-inch rack, electronics rack, where you have multiple components in there. And one of them is a microwave frequency generator, RF synthesizer. And that, your, the computer can tell, tell the microwave frequency generator to generate one particular frequency. Uh, and for us, that's five gigahertz for controlling the qubits and seven gigahertz to read out the state of the qubit. And a microwave frequency generator will, will create that frequency. That has to be mixed with the shape of your pulse you like. You know, we use square pulses, we use Gaussian pulses, but that's another room temperature electronics device called Arbitrary Waveform Generator, AWG. And there is a mixer in between those two devices which mix, mixes the carrier frequency, the 5 gigahertz, with the shape, with the envelope of your pulse. And then that pulse gets then sent, amplified, filtered along the way, but then it, it gets sent inside into the dilution refrigeration system. Our qubits cannot operate at room temperature. They need to be at very low temperatures for various reasons, as we discussed, you know, to minimize uh, the thermal noise, uh, to make sure that the niobium or the metals we use to fabricate our, our microwave circuits, our quantum processor, become superconducting. So there is no, not a lot of dissipation in, in those materials. Uh, so they have to sit at the very bottom of this dilution refrigeration system, which consists of various components. It's fairly sophisticated plumbing system. <laughs> yes, I would say it was a fairly sophisticated plumbing system. But in all seriousness, the time is now to encourage open source development and open source science if we want quantum to become not just accessible, but programmable by the masses. Something Jay spoke about enthusiastically. I think if we can encourage open open source development and open source science uh, where we can effectively communicate about the challenges, that is only going to increase the rate of progress. So as you said, one of the first things I, I wanted to do once we, we put, this, put one of our systems on the cloud was to get a SDK to control, like a software development kit to control it. I, I don't think a behind the scenes or a closed source version of that would have would have had any any appeal. So the quicker you can get more adoption, more people doing new ideas, um, I think is great. And if, if quantum computing is going to be successful, we need to we need to accelerate the rate at which the technology can can be uh, incorporated into to business and science. And we, and I think the only way is through open. And what advice do you have for people who are joining the field today? Pick hard questions and try to answer them. <laughs> no, I think um, 
it's a field with lots of opportunities. I don't think you could ask for a field that has doesn't have so many different areas that have unanswered questions. Um, I think that you should not assume everything is done. Find a good question, get get some advice from people, and 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 see about answer, researching and answering that question. And I think as we go forward, I think that's going to extend to 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 other domains outside research as we develop this how do you actually use these tools i think there's going to be a whole different set of people using it um but my advice to anyone that wants to go into something that's new is uh ask a lot of questions try a lot of things and see what see what works fail fast come up with new ideas and try again at the end of the last episode I said that the story we're telling marks the largest scale coming together of disparate disciplines in the history of computing, physicists, electrical engineers, computer scientists, and chemists. And while Pat Guman and Jay Gambetta have both walked the line between theorist and experimentalist and have left academia for industry, they're also the first to admit that the interdisciplinary nature of this work must continue at scale in order to reach its full potential to represent a diverse workforce featuring all sorts of folks with all sorts of skill sets and backgrounds. And I want to leave you all now with a, a moment that I just love, a very candid exchange between Sebastian and Pat that we caught as we were wrapping up. And you can hear the generosity of spirit here. You can get a real sense of how seriously our guests take the idea that this is an inclusive, big-hearted field that requires multiple points of view and thoughtful collaboration and well, you've uh, probably all heard enough from me by now. Anyway, uh, I, I, I really loved this moment. And I would like to end our time with industry leaders, with Jay Gambetta and Pat Guman, who are paving the way forward right here. Is there anything that, that you wanted to bring up that we haven't so far? I don't know. You might have to edit that in some like relevant uh, spot. But I just want to make sure that... Uh, People understand that it's not it's not a single faculty member, it's not a single VP, it's it, it's not a single scientist, whether his name is Peter Shaw or someone else, uh, who will build those devices, who will make this uh, create enable this for the clients, the researchers, students, and next generations. It's an army of people. It's always a teamwork. It has been, and it always will be. And if there is ever a Nobel Prize for quantum computing. I would be very disappointed if it goes to one individual. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. It's, I mean, to me, uh, the that's a big part of the excitement is is the collaboration, um, and I I love the fact that we're collaborating, you know, outside of even the normal bounds of of emerging technology. We've got you know fundamental research going on, and scientists of all these different domains doing you know work directly hand in hand with engineers and with. Uh, with product marketing and with uh, you know business development and the whole, I mean, it's it's the the broadest spectrum of skills that I've ever collaborated with for sure. Yes, yes, and uh, I'm very optimistic. We're, we're, we're gonna get it done, and sky's the limit. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guests Pat Guman and Jay Gambetta, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfa the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.